if you basically think about our role in the world, America's role in the world, America's leadership, it's been really the byproduct and part of technological leadership. And at no time in modern history has that technology landscape been changing so much and the consequences of not maintaining leadership been so apparent. Welcome to Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we'll hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is David McCormick, CEO of Bridgewater Associates and an Army vet. David served in the first Gulf War and later as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs during the 2008 global financial crisis. He currently serves on several nonprofit boards and holds a seat on the Defense Policy Board. In December, he authored an article titled, America's Military Needs an Innovation Overhaul, which is why we're talking today. David McCormick, welcome to Accelerate Defense. Thanks, Ken. I'm I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You bet. For me, the most interesting aspect of that article was the cultural critique you provided of the military, in particular the way the military has adopted this zero defect risk aversion policy and its effect on stifling innovation. You wrote this, the military is full of curious, educated officers who could apply the lessons of history to concrete problems today, but the services too often dissuade that way of thinking. You began your career as an Army officer. You now sit on the Defense Policy Board. I can't think of anyone better qualified to offer this critique. But my question about it is this, is that just a reflection of the inherent nature of a large bureaucratic organization that requires that level of risk mitigation, not just because of a bottom line, but because of life and death issues? Or is it something that has changed within the military? Has the military lost its innovative edge? Well, yeah, thanks for that question. I think there's a number of, of macro factors that sort of set the stage for this discussion, which, which I'd be happy to go back to. But let me just start with that question head on. And my assessment of that really is a byproduct of my own experience in the military, but also uh, my experience in business. And looking back as a historian, and the, the military has always been challenged to innovate, uh, particularly in times where it's primacy and its leadership has been validated. And that challenge exists today, I think, for particular reasons. So you have this magnificent military that's been at war for 20 years. It's got enormous capability. In terms of spending, it's got uh, more spending relative to any other military in the world by an order of magnitude, probably six to eight to 10 times more than any other military in the world. And so the question is, Given that reality, given that leadership position, is the military innovating sufficiently given the changing circumstances in the world? And I think the answer is no. I think the source of innovation is more likely to be outside defense R&D than inside defense R&D to a greater degree than ever. I think the big technological breakthroughs and the notion of civilian technology versus military technology was always somewhat suspect, but is more likely to be driven by commercial breakthroughs than at any time in our history. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is that you've got two or three generations of military officers that have grown up in a certain environment with uh, certain military experiences, certain combat experiences that have been reinforced and validated by their experience. And the kind of innovation that's required 
is not something that they've been exposed to. And so the most obvious example of that is if you look at the pie chart of how we spend money today in the military, how much of it's focused on emergent technologies, breakthrough technologies, breakthrough doctrinal changes, it's a tiny sliver of that pie. Yet the likelihood of the next war and the next opponent being dramatically different than the past is is much higher. And so you have this challenge of, do we have a culture in our uniformed services that are constantly questioning, asking hard questions, sort of testing existing assumptions, testing existing reality? And the answer is that we don't have a culture that is encouraging of that or adequately encouraging of that. And we have the people that are leading our armed services who are great patriots, great combat leaders, but have grown up in a system where questioning and deviating from the standard path has been very difficult from a career perspective. So that's the diagnosis of our cultural challenge today as I see it. I think that's an apt diagnosis, David, but you go beyond diagnosing in your article into providing a prescription for change. What are some of those structural changes that we need to foster the kind of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley and to compel the kind of cooperation we'll need between government, the primes, and the non-traditionals? So I think the starting point for that question is really thinking about innovation at the national level. And I think at the national level, we have some real challenges. So if you look at R&D spending as a percentage of GDP, Today, relative to 50 years ago, it's about half what it was. And if you compare it to the amount of R&D that other key competitors around the world are spending on basic R&D, it's wildly inadequate for what's required. So we need to think about our national innovation strategy, which is a, a really critical piece of this. And I think we need to have a focus on these key emergent technologies where we're finding ways for the private sector and the public sector to collaborate in much more meaningful ways to ensure that the U.S. maintains leadership in things like artificial intelligence and quantum science and 5G, because those are winner-take-all technologies that have huge geopolitical significance. And so having that leadership position and not being dependent on other countries is a really critical part of our overall national power, our national strength. Now, from a military perspective, I make really two sets of recommendations for how we might think about the innovation agenda within the military. The first is really a recognition of the point I just made about the driver being commercial technologies and the distinction between military technology and commercial technologies being much diminished. So while DARPA has been a huge driver in the past where the Defense Innovation Unit and so forth are really critical developments, they're still a tiny part of the answer. And we need to draw those commercial technologies into our defense ecosystem in a much more meaningful way. And if you look at the providers to our defense industry, it's largely the major defense contractors. And the way the acquisition process works, it's very, very difficult for new entrants to actually have access to the defense budget. And it's very difficult for them to operate because of the ambiguity of how that process works and the inconsistency of funding, where if you're a big defense contractor, you can deal with the ups and downs of the funding. But as a small emergent technology provider that may have a breakthrough technology, it's very difficult to make those inroads. So we need to find ways to open up the acquisition process to new entrants, and we need to find ways to give them some consistency of funding to allow them to actually be able to provide new ideas that really aren't emanating adequately from our traditional defense contractors. So there's a whole reform of that defense ecosystem that I think is going to be required. But that alone won't get us there. The other set of changes, I think, are very much around 
the cultural challenges that we just spoke about. And in that case, I think we need to think about how we're, it's just like in business or any organization, how we create the right incentives to ensure people are moving out on the risk curve. And what I mean by that is taking chances in their careers on things that are outside the traditional paths, that we're investing in key leaders having the opportunity to try things and fail. Because a key part of the evolution of our technologies and our doctrine is experimentation. And so we have to create a culture with much more experimentation, flexibility, and agility, and where we're promoting a new generation of leaders that are more apt to think outside the box. A final point is that that also won't happen without the injection of new kinds of people and new thinking. So I think we need to find ways to have parallel entry points in terms of our military drawing on civilian innovators, civilian technologists, and bringing them into the force, maybe not in traditional uniform ways, but in ways that they stimulate the thinking. And we need to find opportunities for our key leaders to go outside the force and spend a year or two throughout their careers in key innovative companies or key hotbeds of innovation so they can have their fundamental assumptions tested and their thinking expanded. lot that I want to react to in that answer, but um, I'll start with your, your observation about contracting and the acquisitions process needing to go beyond the traditional suppliers, which, by the way, our previous two guests, Congressman Moulton and Congressman Bacon, both highlighted as well. In your recent article, you wrote that Firms that contract with the Pentagon must navigate labyrinthine bureaucratic processes and rely on unpredictable or insufficient funding streams. The big established contractors can do so, but that complexity makes it difficult for firms outside the traditional defense ecosystem to do business with the Pentagon. I hear that sense of frustration all the time from the non-traditionals, from the startups. What initiatives do you see currently underway that we might be able to scale or what centers of innovation with the military might we be able to highlight, like AFWorks, like AAL, that can really supercharge this innovation? You know, I should have made this point earlier. There's lots of point locations where there's terrific innovative thinking underway. You know, DARPA continues to be a real national treasure in terms of its capacity to drive innovation. The uh, Defense Innovation Unit was a great concept and is, I think, a a useful way to begin to try to draw unique tech suppliers into the defense ecosystem, but at a relatively small scale. So those, those kinds of initiatives need to come to scale. The Air Force efforts led by Will Roper are a great start. And you see really key points in, in the Marine Corps, as an example, the planning guidance was an excellent example of the kind of innovative leadership we're looking for in this the 2019 planning guidance. The problem is these are uh, sort of innovation archipelagos where they're isolated and independent of other parts of the defense ecosystem. And I think that innovation agenda really needs to be a driving force of the next Secretary of Defense. It needs to start with the Secretary of Defense in partnership with the Congress And, you know, just sort of ask yourself the fundamental question. If you look at our, you know, $800 billion budget and you look at what percentage of that $800 billion is directed at new, emergent, asymmetric thinking, asymmetric ideas, asymmetric doctrinal changes, I think you would find that it's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. And if you go to the business analogy and you say, we have a core business That is really excellent in in many ways, but it has all sorts of challenges in the world that it's facing. We want to create, in parallel, 
a new business opportunity that will grow and create the kinds of capabilities we need, you'd ask yourself what kind of investment is required to do that. And we're not investing in those, um, we're not finding institutionalized, significant, top-down strategic ways to make those investments. And so I think it's a matter of scale and, and grossly inadequate scale. I think it's a matter of a lack of top-down orchestration and strategic direction. And even with that direction, there's going to have to be some underlying changes to the engineering of how we incent people and how we reward people because the top-down guidance without the change in incentives won't do much. Does part of the onus lie not just on government when you speak of top-down, but on the primes, on the big defense contractors to recognize the potential of the non-traditionals, to reach out on their own and identify innovation and talent where it exists and bring that into the defense industrial base and, and not always wait for government to build that bridge. Ideally, yes, but I'm not, I'm not optimistic, to be honest with you, that without structural changes, without the right incentive structure, that's likely to happen. I was, um, I guess, I don't know, 25, sort of 1997 till 2005, I ran a technology company, a publicly traded technology company. We had a government business. And that government business was uh, a real source of opportunity, but ultimately we decided to redirect our focus and our resources and our energy on clients or customers outside the government and outside DOD because of the uncertainty that was created from a funding perspective and the inability to even understand how decisions were being made. In that particular case, we reached out to a number of the primes and talked to them about our technology and our ideas. And that was almost equally difficult to navigate from a labyrinth perspective. And ultimately created a dynamic where it was more likely than not that the more we collaborated with them, the more our technologies were going to be put at risk of being replicated by them and ultimately sold. So their incentive structure is not aligned. It's not aligned to bring new entrants in unless there's a demand signal on the DOD side. And so I think that that's likely to be what's required. And right now, as you've seen among the primes, there's been consolidation. And so it's very difficult for new market entrants to break into that. And uh, I think we're going to have to make some structural changes to change that dynamic. So the hand of government is going to be required in in one form or another. Accepting that reality, what are the things that government can do best? Are there specific legislative tweaks that might be or might not be included in this latest NDAA that you're hopeful about? Where should government apply its pressure? Well, a couple different thoughts. At the national level, I say this with as a as a good card-carrying Republican, so I, I want to say this with great, with great care, but I think the government needs to get much more involved in the funding and the structure of the investments in these key emergent technologies that have such geopolitical significance. As I said, AI, quantum science, 5G, there are others. And how to get the government involved in a way which doesn't become overtly political is really, um, really a challenge. And I think we need to find ways to do that, that adhere to basic market principles in terms of not picking winners and losers, but basically supporting a the structure of an industry or ensuring that R&D dollars flow in a particular way. And one way we might do that is um, is something that we've seen the Chinese do, which is quite interesting, which is they have invested side by side with venture capitalists, the government, the Chinese government, with venture capitalists in the artificial intelligence area. 
And then the way the government investment is structured, they've created a first loss where the government takes the first loss and uh, they've capped their return at 15%. So what you've essentially done is you've facilitated an incentive, the incremental flow of private capital to an area that you believe has outsized strategic importance. And I think that kind of thinking, which you know some people call industrial policy, some people call innovation policy, but that kind of thinking with the appropriate constraints and the appropriate free market principles is the direction we should be taking these things. In terms of the role that the government can play from a DOD perspective, or the Congress could even play, it's essentially dictating a set of processes and funding streams that ensure that these new suppliers are drawn into the defense ecosystem. It's going to require more consistent funding from DOD. They're not going to be able to have small companies that are trying to establish themselves be able to bet on the come indefinitely. So they're going to have to create insured funding streams, and they're going to have to ensure that the access to the opportunities is made more transparent. The pipeline of opportunities is made more transparent than it currently is today, and essentially eliminate the labyrinth that uh, I was referring to. You just expressed some some reservations about government picking winners and losers. But this has become, if not a point of contention, at least a point of conversation in this area with folks like Steve Blank and Trace Evans saying, no, we've got to get back to government picking the winners like Skunk Works, like those initiatives that have proven they can deliver results quickly. Do you think there is a conflict between that kind of idealism, government not picking winners and losers, and the zero defect mentality that so infects the cultural thinking of the military? Yeah, that's. uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I want to tease that out a bit. I want to differentiate between taking more risk in a risk culture from picking winners and losers from a government funding perspective and what that means. So essentially what I'm describing is the need to ensure adequate funding to key sectors and private sector partnerships with the public sector that allows for disproportionate focus on things that we think are going to have significant geopolitical advantage. So that's one point. A second point is opening up the ecosystem that allows these new entrants to have access to opportunities. Now, within that context, then there's going to be a process by which the appropriate new entrants are selected, this one over that one. And the very act of contracting and making a choice is picking a winner over a loser. So I'm not inside the traditional acquisition process. Yes, I'm I'm agreeing that should be the case. And in selecting those winners versus losers, we should certainly take on more risk. And by that, I mean, you're going to have to be able to experiment with new technologies, new companies with the added expectation that you're going to have a higher failure rate. And the design needs to allow for that and encourage that and expect that up front. But those choices should be made very much around the criteria of where we think that technology is going to best serve and that company is going to best serve the government's needs. And when I'm saying pick winners and losers where the risk becomes evident is through the parochial political efforts of Congress or the selection process where choices become far more political than merit-driven. And that's the thing I think we need to seek to avoid. How unhelpful is our political situation right now to the changes you are promoting. And that's probably a nice way of putting it, considering the events of the past few weeks. But is there something fundamentally misaligned within our political system with long-term thinking and a fidelity to the national interest that rises above partisanship, the kind that, that is required to do what you're proposing? 
Yeah, I think there most certainly is. I mean, I think it's inherent in our political system to some degree, and it poses real challenges. And there's sort of two challenges. One is the size of the pie, and then the second is how the pie gets divided. And of course, the smaller the pie gets, the more contentious it becomes around how the pie gets divided. But I I do think that political interest and congressional interest have a lot to do, particularly with protecting our existing posture and our existing structure. And it because we have that embedded structure and those embedded commitments, those embedded platforms, that in and of itself sort of takes the large proportion of the defense budget right off the table. And then the piece that's left is relatively small, and then there's all sorts of competing interests for that. And our opponents you know, have the advantage of being much further behind us in some ways, and so they're building from scratch. And so they can invest in these asymmetric capabilities, which really will challenge our primacy despite those, you know, enormous platforms we have. So it's a real strategic conundrum. And I think the the uniform military reinforces it for some of the reasons we've said. And then they obviously play their own role in lobbying on Capitol Hill and feeding that dynamic. So the system isn't geared towards making fundamental resource reallocations in light of a changing strategic landscape. And yet that's our reality. And so I think it's a real problem. And I think part of the answer will have to come, and this won't be completely adequate, part of it will have to come from the SEC DAF down. And um, that's the point I made in the article, which is these kinds of changes won't come without a clear point of leadership making the case on what's required. And that's a starting point. That alone won't be adequate, but it's a, it's a critical starting point for painting the picture of what's required. Well, I think this also speaks to one of those areas that really only government can lead on. And even Trey Stevens and Steve Blank uh, would uh, agree on this, that coordinating efforts across disparate industries, disparate agencies requires the hand of government. They write a bit about this. You write about, I believe, a national innovation policy. There has to be a national strategy for this kind of thing that brings all of the players to the table, not just the primes, but the non-traditionals, the military, and critically, the warfighters themselves. I love some of what is going on on these innovation archipelagos with getting immediate feedback from the front lines, but it's it's going to require government action to compel that systematically, right? I, I really think so. And it's and while the military innovation piece is, is a critical starting point for that discussion, it's really a level even above that, which is if you basically think about our role in the world, America's role in the world, America's leadership, it's been really the byproduct and part of technological leadership. And at no time in modern history has that technology landscape been changing so much and the consequences of not maintaining leadership been so apparent. And if you look at, you know, one of our primary competitors or opponents in this changing landscape, it's of course China. And say what you will about China, but China has a plan. China has an explicit plan for how to ensure it has indigenous leadership in these critical technologies that have such enormous significance. And if you look internally at us and say, what's our plan? We don't really have an integrated, top-down national plan, a national plan for a modernization and innovation program, a plan for how the funding should support that, a plan for how the private sector and the public sector should come together, a plan for how that partnership between the private sector and public sector should manifest itself within DOD. There is not a national plan. And I think therein lies part of the challenge. 
And there's no doubt that there'll be lots of controversy about choices, but boy, I welcome the moment when we're actually having that conversation <laughs> at a national level about how those, what those trade-offs are, because we'll know then that we're actually focused on the right problem. Right now, the problem is diffusely understood, being dealt with in very pocketed ways and isn't a top of nation kind of discussion, which I think it needs to be. I want to go back to the primes briefly to bring back the business side of this conversation. You talked about asymmetric capabilities and DOD needing to anticipate those. But I would think that given the winner-take-all nature of some of these emergent technologies, that's your term, that primes who are not accounting for that, who don't have people on the tip of the spear or at least thinking about the leading edge of innovation are at risk of, if not extinction, at least a real threat to their fundamental business. Is that fair, given the nature of AI and quantum and 5G and the disruption they pose? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the most significant challenge is our military is you know, at the risk of uh, being wildly inadequate if it relies solely on the traditional platforms and the traditional path within our defense contracting ecosystem. And then a derivative of that of course, is that it's the current model is increasingly anachronistic in terms of being able to fulfill the needs of our military at a moment when the boundaries between commercial technology and military technology are increasingly blurry and where the amount of R&D investment and the amount of breakthroughs that are happening is orders of magnitude larger in the civilian sector than in the traditional defense contractors. So they, in their current form, are simply inadequate in filling what the need is. And so there needs to be an evolution within our defense contracting arena. And the defense contractors need to be an important part of that, there's no doubt. But the point I was making earlier is I'm not counting on them to do that on their own. I think it's going to require some fairly significant shifts in incentives and resource allocations to change the behavior. I want to finish with a discussion about leadership and people, because I I think you have a perspective on this born of experience, which is rare, if not unique. I loved the headline in the Financial Times when you took over at Bridgewater. The lead was your military history. It said, David McCormick, the ex-Army Ranger, set to take full command at Bridgewater. How did you bring to bear your military experience in the leadership role you took and hold at Bridgewater? Well, probably like you, Ken, I mean, my military experience sort of defined, it set up foundation for everything that's followed. You know, I'm so grateful for those lessons, big and small, that I learned from that time. And, um, you know, it's nothing um, cosmic, honestly. It's very much around thinking about people, focused on leading by example, focused on giving clarity of communication, focused on learning and being agile enough to learn from your mistakes, being transparent about your mistakes. It's from seeing the potential in others and seeing it as a leadership responsibility to help others grow. Those lessons that I learned from the Army, and I, I didn't always learn them perfectly, and I've, I've forgotten some of them and learned them the hard way a couple times over the years. But those basic lessons, we are so fortunate, both of us, to have learned those as young men because they carried forward in everything we've done since then. You know, the benefit of having those experiences early is that you carry them with you always. I think you also carry with you a sense of fallibility and a recognition it's really not about you. It's about others and helping them be as successful as they can possibly be. So, you know, I remember going into the military and thinking, boy, if I ever 
want to have a civilian life. These military experiences, I, I mean, I'm sort of setting myself back from all my colleagues. And it's the exact opposite. Those military experiences sort of help frame who I am and who I've been and who I aspire to be. So I am forever grateful. You've applied the lessons you learned in the military to your your prescriptions for revamping the whole personnel makeup of the military. When I read what you've proposed around workforce restructuring and the need to bring in people at lateral levels. You don't just limit this to your leadership role at Bridgewater. You think the military can benefit from it today, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, the the concept I've been, which is sort of related to the point you're making, the concept that I've been thinking a lot about and, and I've written about recently a couple times as it relates to workforce is really the notion of national service. You know, that experience that you and I had in the military, it taught us all those leadership lessons. But more than that, I think it helped us feel like true participants in our society with a common purpose. And that common purpose, in my experience, and I suspect in yours, it transcended race and socioeconomic status and urban versus rural. And that experience helped me feel like I was part of something special in being an American and a patriot. And it made me feel closer to all those people and better understanding of all those people that I serve with. And we lack that today in our country. We have increasing divisiveness and polarization, the, you know, the recent election and recent events highlight that. And what's most notable is how very different, different people see our country at, you know, significant ways at scale. So I think the idea of finding ways to have people serve together in national service, doesn't have to be military service, is a way to both create that commonality, that mutual understanding, but also as a way to ensure basic skills training and a leg up in entering the workforce that, I think, is an idea that whose time has come. It's, an, it's not an easy idea to implement. It's got huge implications, but it's something I hope our leaders will consider. Well, David, I couldn't have said it better myself. This is a show about defense innovation, but I cannot think of a better time for that kind of social innovation that shared service would mean for everyone who gets the chance to do it. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to David for joining us on this month's episode of Accelerate Defense. Next month, we'll kick off a series of interviews with CEOs. We're focusing on leaders of startups and other non-traditionals who've chosen to work with the DOD. We're going to be talking about the challenges and the opportunities that come with making that leap. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And subscribe to this series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out every month. Accelerate Defense is a monthly podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.